Hi, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Welcome to Tumble, the show where we explore stories of science discovery. Today we're sharing an incredible story of a breakthrough discovery that changed the way we see the universe. The Kuiper Belt is the distant field of small, icy objects beyond Neptune. It's studied by astronomers all over the world, but it wasn't until recently that we even knew it existed. We're going to get the story from the woman who discovered it. What do you think it's like to make a big scientific breakthrough, a discovery that changes the way we understand the world and the universe? Does the breakthrough happen all of a sudden, like a clap of lightning, or is it a long, slow process? And what happens afterwards? Do you just like go to lunch? <laughs> think about it, because you're about to hear the story of two astronomers who made a breakthrough that changed our picture of the solar system. And the story doesn't go quite like you might expect. I remember distinctly Dave saying, "Jane, if we find this thing, we'll never have to work again." And he is so wrong. <laughs> Dave's not wrong very often, but that's a really, really wrong prediction. <laughs> that's astronomer Jane Liu. In 1992, she and fellow astronomer Dave Jewett discovered the Kuiper Belt. A huge area of small icy objects beyond Neptune. Today, it's seen as kind of the final frontier of our solar system. So, how did they discover it? Well, the story starts back when Jane was a young scientist, just starting out in astronomy. And it was the early days of graduate school. I, I remember having to find a project to do. Jane wanted to study comets and other small objects in space. Dave Jewett, who was her professor, suggested looking for them where no one had ever looked before, in the very outer reaches of the solar system. Jane was skeptical about the idea. So I, I asked, "Well, if these things might exist, why why didn't anybody look for them?" He said, "Well, because they're faint. They, they would be faint if they existed at all." What did he mean? They'd be faint if they existed at all. Well, he was asking Jane to look for something in far distant space that would be really hard to see, and no one thought was out there. So he's basically telling her to go over to some haystack, and he thinks there might be a needle in it. At the time, everyone just kind of accepted the idea that, besides for Pluto, the solar system beyond Neptune was just empty. But Dave explained to Jane that he didn't believe that, and he pointed out that. There is no reason why the outer solar system should be completely empty. It didn't seem reasonable that there should be a sharp edge, like a big, a sharp cutoff beyond which there was nothing. This was all based around a really well-established idea in astronomy that after the sun and planets formed billions of years ago, there was a lot of leftover material. Kind of like planet scraps, like when you're crafting planets at home, you always have some extra. <laughs> exactly. Those scraps are the small bodies Jane was interested in—comets and asteroids. We know that there are lots and lots of them in the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter. Dave's idea was that there should be more scrap material beyond the farthest out planets too. And so he said, "Well, we should, we should look." And I said, "Well, haven't other people looked?" And he says, "No. If we don't, nobody else will, because we're the only people crazy enough to do it." You know, if there's one thing that gets me on board with any project, it's being told that I'm one of the only people crazy enough to do it. <laughs> I 
no, Jane went along with that. To her, it ended up being a relatively simple and interesting question. So th- there were two possible answers. Uh, one is, no, there is nothing. We don't be on Neptune. In which case, it's still good to know. Because that provides another data point and tells you something about how the solar system formed. Meaning, if there was a sharp edge to the solar system, that might change our whole idea about how it formed. Or the answer could be, yes, there are things beyond Neptune, in which case we want to find them. Okay, so the scene is all ready. They've got their discovery shoes, their discovery hats. (laughs) Hopefully they got uh, team jackets that (laughs) said team outside of Neptune discovery team. (laughs) (laughs) I believe it was the slow moving objects team. (laughs) (laughs) So did they have like a big send off, like kind of a launch party where they had some cake, maybe a croissant? Not really. And then, so when we started at work, everybody was skeptical, not just most, everybody was skeptical. Jane and Dave needed to use a big, powerful telescope if they had any hope of detecting these small, faint objects so far away. It's really big. You don't hold it up to your eye. There's very few of these telescopes, and astronomers are always asking for time to use them. We would ask for telescope time to do our search. They were routinely denied. Right, so there's not just like a sign-up sheet, like like, like for the bounce house. <laughs> Be like, we got the bounce house this weekend, guys. <laughs> no, there's a whole long, complicated application process. Getting your request for telescope time denied is like astronomy's way of saying, we don't think what you're doing is really that important. <laughs> it's pretty cold. But that didn't stop Jane and Dave They were going to make it happen no matter what. If they didn't give us time for these observations, we we would steal from ourselves. We would have telescope time to do other things. And and then we would just use them for for this project. So would they constantly be looking over their shoulders, being like, don't tell the boss, but we're going to look for small, slow-moving objects beyond Neptune. They would tell people in charge of the telescope that they were studying something that was more popular to study. Then, when no one was looking, they'll point the telescope out beyond Neptune. (laughs) Astronomical deception. Smooth. (laughs) So did they find anything? No. Not for many years. Which really didn't help their case with other astronomers. Every so often they would say, you're just wasting your time. You've been doing this for a long time and you haven't found anything. There's nothing there. Why didn't they give up? Like, I don't know. After you've been looking for something like some kind of body beyond Neptune, I'd give it like a month. (laughs) There was one thing on their side. New technology. In astronomy, every so often there's a significant jump in the improvement of the detectors. The detectors are the part of the telescopes that control how much you can see into space and how well you can see what's there. The technology keeps improving. It's kind of like how our cameras keep getting better and better on our phones. It just worked out that every time we were getting discouraged, the detectors got better. (laughs) And then you would think, oh, with this new detector, we're really going to find something. And so they kept us going. They kept going for five years. The real turning point came when Dave got a new job that gave him access to one of the best telescopes in the world, in Hawaii. And then we have access to the telescopes on Mauna Kea, which is a a big volcano on the island of Hawaii. 
1992, they got some treasured time on the telescope. At night, when the sky was dark and clear, they settled into the small, quiet control room of the telescope. Dave and I would go to the telescope, and the two of us would just run everything together. Their plan was to trade off jobs. One person would take photos with the camera on the telescope. The other person was inspecting the pictures and trying to spot any differences. The, the way you find a slow-moving thing, or any moving thing in the solar system, is that you take a, a series of images of the same area of the sky, spaced out over, say, I don't know, an hour and then you display them on your computer. They'll click through the photos back and forth and back again, looking closely to see if anything moved against the background of stars. Anything that moves would show up very easily. Stars and galaxies, they don't move at all, so they just stay fixed. It's just like these little flip books that kids play with, you know, and you flip the pages really fast, and it seems like things are moving. It's just the exact same idea. So, like, not too fancy a technique. It's called blinking the images. At some point late into the night, Jane was at the camera and Dave was at the computer looking at her photos. So Dave was blinking two images just because, well, what else do you do? Uh, And he saw something. Okay, what did he see? A tiny faint light had moved from one image to the other. And he pointed out to me and I said, oh, okay, maybe, you know, that's good, but. Yeah, there's only two images. Jane waited for the next image to see that there was something actually moving. Then he was blinking the three images, and the object he saw was still there in the third image. It was still moving in the right direction, still the same brightness, at the right speed that we were going for. So did she believe it then? By the third image, we yeah, we were pretty excited. And then we took a fourth image. And it was still there and was still going the right direction. Still the same brightness. This was the moment they'd been waiting for for five years. Jane and Dave knew they were looking at something really interesting, but they couldn't say what it was for sure yet. Maybe it's a comet. Maybe it's a distant comet, right? Just just coming through the solar system. So, yes, you were excited, but until the orbit is determined, you can't jump up and down yet. (laughs) So... What does that mean, until the orbit is determined? They had to repeat their measurements the next night to confirm that, yes, the objects kept moving in the direction they predicted at the speed they predicted. There was nothing left for them to do but wait for the next night. And then you just keep thinking, oh, something's going to go wrong. The telescope is just going to like, fall apart. The, the instrument would fall apart. Something's going to be wrong. And remember, not sleeping very much. Oh, man, imagine being on the brink of a breakthrough and so much being out of your control. I know. If it was cloudy the next night, they wouldn't have been able to see anything. It was probably pretty unlikely that the telescope would suddenly break, though. Um, But still, the next night, they got lucky. And we found it again. And so so there was joy and, (laughs) and jumping up and down. So what was it? What was this thing they found? It was a small, icy body. They could tell its size, its orbit, and the fact that it was icy because far away things in space tend to be icy. Yes, it's cold out there. You could say that. The most important thing is, it was found where no one believed anything like it existed. It was given the number 1992 QB1. 
that means it was discovered in August 1992. Astronomers aren't too creative with their naming systems. So did they come down from the mountain to be greeted by a crowd of cheering astronomers? Like, I imagine all of them clapping their hands and saying, like, attaboy. <laughs> no. A lot of people say, oh, well, we don't know what this thing is. Some people said, there's only one object like it, and you found it. <laughs> and then we would say, are you crazy? <laughs> so when will people believe them? They had to find another object. And to do that, they had to wait for another turn on the telescope six months later. And then we found the second one. <laughs> so we were really happy. <laughs> and then, yeah, after you found the second one, you know, okay, phew, there are a lot of these things. <laughs> so are there a lot of these things? Yes. Astronomers now believe that there are 100,000 small icy bodies like the one Jane and Dave found in a disc-shaped area much, much bigger than the asteroid belt. It's the material left over from the formation of the solar system. I guess that proves their original hypothesis or idea that there's no hard edge to the solar system. Yeah, it just kind of petered out. And that discovery opened a huge field of research, not just in our own solar system, but in every solar system in the universe. What it tells us is that when you make planet, there's always leftover material, and that is the Kuiper belt. So it tells us that when you go look in any other solar system, there should be Kuiper belts around every single other planetary system. It's just leftover stuff. And if you want to figure out what happened in the early days, that's the stuff you want to study. Wow. So she's saying that there's a Kuiper belt in every solar system. And it gives you clues about how the planets there were formed. Yeah. Man, that's like a really big deal. I kind of can't believe I've never heard about this before. I know. Jane and Dave received some awards and recognition from the scientific community for their discovery. But neither of them studies the Kuiper belt today. We just never wanted to do what everybody else was doing. What, so they searched all this time, proving themselves to be right against all odds and all the naysayers, and finally people joined them and they're like, yeah, cool, I'm done. <laughs> Basically, because what they loved was the search and the mystery. They loved exploring what was totally unknown. Anybody who likes exploring, like you always want to, you know, find, you solve a puzzle nobody has solved before, you find something nobody has seen before. I think, I, I don't think we're alone in that. I think everybody wants to be an explorer. Jane's love for exploring led her to a big breakthrough discovery in space the kind that are rarely made by just two people in astronomy. But she and Dave aren't treated as special. They're still regular, working astronomers. I don't think about it much. I don't go around saying, hmm, every, like, I'm Jane Lou, I just go over the Kuiper. I, I don't think about it very often. Yes, it's nice to have done something good, but, but Dave was very, very wrong when he said we would never have to work again. She's uh, pretty humble for someone who changed the way we picture every solar system in the universe. When it comes to breakthroughs, I feel like there's this idea that they're only made by special, rare geniuses. Like Galileo or Leonardo da Vinci or Archimedes. Or Stephen Hawking. Sure, that guy. <laughs> but Jane doesn't see herself as a genius. She's just someone who got really good at doing what she loves. 
the word genius is thrown around a lot. And some people are, are truly genius. They're just so, so smart and they see things so clearly. But a lot of time, they're just people who, who just think about whatever they like a lot. They think about it day and night just because they like it. And, and if you like something a lot and you think about it all the time, you're going to be good at it and you're going to find something that other people lo- overlooked. So think about it for yourself. What do you like so much that you think about it day and night? It doesn't have to be science. Once you know what the thing you like is, how might you get good at it? What might you think of that other people haven't? You don't have to have an answer right away, but you never know. It might lead to a big new idea or even a breakthrough someday. Jane Liu, planetary astronomer with the Arctic University of Tromso in Norway. We have more from our fascinating interview with Jane Liu. You can learn about her recent research on the mysterious, weirdly shaped, possibly alien interstellar object Oumuamua on Patreon and our CastBox Premium channel. And you can learn more about the Kuiper Belt on our website, sciencepodcastforkids.com. I'm Lindsay Patterson, and I wrote and produced this show. I'm Marshall Escamilla, and I made all of the music. Thanks for listening, and join us next time for more stories of science discovery.